0: All right, y'all. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. I'm I'm really excited today. Got a uh, special guest in the house for you guys. Uh, somebody coming all the way from the West Coast, and uh, I discovered him a while back. On um, I can't remember. I just I think I saw one of his lecture series on YouTube, and I, and it was one of the best things I've ever listened to. Stuff on the Book of Revelation. Lately, I've been nerding out on his series about how Presbyterians were the were the original gangsters that founded America. There's like 30-something episodes on that. They're just, man, it's su- such good material, history, theology. Um, but I want him to come in today and speak to some of that, but also about eschatology. He comes from the—I think he would have maybe uh, issues with some of these labels, that, which he can talk about, but more the post-mill, uh, a hopeful eschatology perspective— And so I'm just excited for you guys to meet uh, Bruce Gore. I'm going to bring him in here. Thanks for coming on the show, Mr. Bruce.
1: Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Um, well, as we get started here, I guess, could you, would you mind just giving our listeners a little bit about your background, your journey of, you know, growing up? I think you grew up in a Christian home, but have had some somewhat of a theological slash vocational journey. And maybe share a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Grew
1: up, uh, I grew up in a rural town, uh, about 100 miles from Spokane, called Grand Coulee. It's where Grand Coulee Dam is. This is where my dad worked. And it was a Christian home, grew up a Baptist, uh, very conservative, you know, and a lot of uh, Bible stories and that sort of thing. Went to Whitworth uh, University here in Spokane. It was Whitworth College back then, 1967. Uh, still a confirmed Baptist, so Whitworth is a Presbyterian school. But uh, I, uh, I was surprised when I was at Whitworth to learn much to my shock as a Baptist that you could be both a Presbyterian and a Christian at the same time. You know, I'd never uh, <laughs> never really uh, realized that because my background was so narrow, so focused that I really had doubts about that. But I had <laughs> wonderful experiences with uh, some great professors uh, at that time, and it, it did loosen my mortar a little bit. Uh, in terms of uh, my, my tradition, I, I still was, even graduated, I was still technically Baptist, but Got a job here in Spokane uh, in the early '70s. Uh, I had been in, in broadcasting, but I I got a job in a little school here, a Bible school, uh, teaching speech, and that kind of morphed into a full time gig there. So for about five years, five to seven years, I taught at uh, this little Bible school, taught Greek, of, you know, philosophy, Bible, history, that kind of thing. It was sort of like my seminary, you know. I I had to teach all this stuff and to teach it, you gotta learn it. And so that was uh, uh, kind of a backdoor to getting a little bit of uh, training in those ideas. But interestingly enough, ironically, really, the the school where I was teaching was firmly committed to a dispensational outlook. You're familiar with that term, but it would be people who would really, generally believe we're in the end times, believe that God is gonna rapture the church out of the world, reinstate a program with Israel, and that will lead to a millennium, you know, so that's the kind of the short version of that, and I was convinced of that. I taught it. I believed it. It was the tradition in which I'd grown up, and, and what I found teaching in this little school over about seven years or so was that the more I tried to defend that view, the more chinks in the armor I was running into, especially when it came to teaching church history. Uh, I found that the greatest thinkers in the history of the church had never heard of dispensationalism. There had been you know, some minor voices here and there that had said little uh, sort of uh, side things that you could construe in favor of maybe a a, a modified dispensational view, but certainly the great thinkers, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and so on. The the great thinkers uh, really of all branches of the Christian movement, uh, this would have been a totally foreign idea to them. And as I studied it more deeply, I became more and more uh, concerned that maybe I just, at least at that particular part of my uh, own background in education, gotten into a, a kind of a track that really I couldn't defend very well biblically. I finally left the school in 1980 on very good terms. Uh, you know, shook hands, everybody liked each other, but I could no longer sign their doctoral statement, which committed me without mental reservation to a dispensational outlook. And a couple of years later, I needed a job, so I went to law school and and I became a lawyer. Practiced law in here in Spokane for about twenty twenty five years or so. Uh, later, in the early nineteen in the early two thousands, uh, I was uh, confronted with the opportunity to teach at a classical Christian school here in Spokane. I'd really done enough of law that you know had kind of been there, done that, and, and was looking for something a little less stressful and. It's a great opportunity. So the last uh, few years of my career, working career, I was teaching uh, in a classical school, high schoolers, mostly, mostly uh, philosophy, Bible, that sort of thing. Retired about 10 years ago. I'm fully retired now. I work one hour a week teaching Sunday school. So that's my whole gig right there. <laughs> so that's been a, uh, a very enjoyable uh uh, way to to have an opportunity to study and and present, and so that's really the whole story right there in a nutshell.
0: No, that's good. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm convinced that you can be a Presbyterian and a Christian yet, but maybe you can persuade me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, you know that. You know, the, I'm surprised you didn't do the the normal faculty thing where you signed the uh, agreement, even though you don't believe that any. But that that's honorable of you <laughs> to uh, well, to be I honest so. with that.
1: It's uh, it was an interesting uh, conversation. The, the the internal conversations I had around 1980, when I was thinking I'd need to resign uh, because of that, I had I talked to my boss in private, and I told him, "Look, you know, you know, I've been wrestling with some of this, and I just really can't sign it." And he really did say to me, "Well, you know, can't you just kind of?" postpone this for a while. You know? I mean they, they liked me and they wanted me to keep me on. And I think he wanted me to uh maybe just kind of fudge my conscience a little bit. Right. <laughs> so but anyway, I, I decided yeah. I really I really couldn't do that. And so we we parted on friendly terms. It was
0: just Yeah was man. Fun. Well you, you gotta say, you know I can't postpone it. Jesus is coming back really soon. That's you know right. he might he might all yeah. be accountable. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. No, but, um, you know, wh- wh- you have an interesting Hal Lindsey story and, you know, people may not may or may not know, but he was one of the kind of large popularizers of certain versions of pre-trib rapture right. dispensational view. Can you, you know, tell our listeners about your, your own interaction or story with that? Sure.
1: Yeah, you know, Hal Lindsey, if, you're, if your listeners aren't aware, was probably one of the most famous people in America back in the early 70s. He had been uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ, and uh, so he traveled around and spoke on college campuses, very effective speaker, especially back then. He was a young man himself and had a lot of humor, a lot of appeal, and, and um, he was, I would say, of all the people in the history of dispensationalism, the one person who succeeded in getting a dispensational outlook out of the kind of academic world of seminaries, you know, that took that view, especially Dallas Seminary, uh, and making it popular, uh, making it something that people were talking about. They might not use the term dispensationalism, but they knew about the rapture, they knew about the Antichrist, they knew about the Battle of Armageddon, they knew all the jargon that was kind Mm. of associated loosely with what you'd call a dispensational outlook. And uh, so that was really his claim to fame. But at the time I heard him, he was still with Campus Crusade. This was in 1968. I was a a second-year student at Whitworth. He was going to be speaking at the University of Idaho, which is about 100 miles away. So a bunch of us students jumped in a bus, and we drove down to the University of Idaho to hear him speak over a, a weekend. So we were there overnight and that kind of thing. And he gave several lectures. They were all really good. But the last one that he gave was uh, was he kind of rolled out his whole view that we're living in the end times. And of course, he's appealing to uh, Ezekiel 37 and 38 and, and God, Gog and Magog, you know, and Rosh has, has to do with Russia and, and uh, Gog is probably China and 200 million army China boasted of at that time. And the Bible seems to say a 200 million man army, and you know, all of these things that were sort of cherry-picked from uh, different parts of the Bible, but he made, especially to fairly young, impressionable college students, a very, very compelling case. Uh, I was convinced, I mean, I you know, I just walked away a firm believer at that time that uh, we must be living in the end times. And he said at that point um, something, he was concluding his remarks with uh, comments along this line, he said, You know, uh, the Bible says, no man knows the day or the hour. And hell, said, I don't know the day or the hour. He was very uh, firm about that. But he said, as I look at the world situation today, as I look at the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 and reckon that the longest that a a generation could be measured uh, biblically would be up to 40 years, and you figure that means that Christ, uh, the end, the end times here have to come sometime around 1988. He said, but as he considered where sort of the momentum of geopolitical events was was uh, heading, he he said in this lecture he could not imagine that Jesus, uh, that the rapture. Uh, would take place any later than 1975. He just thought, you know, it was t- too much was happening too rapidly. It was all coming together. And he talked me into it. I mean, I was, you know, I was a firm believer, sign me up kind of deal. And so as I came back to Whitworth, uh, I was prepared to do what people tend to do when they think they're living in the end times namely, detach from everything that has a long term uh, focus to it. I was prepared to drop out of college, to go out and start preaching on the street corners, Jesus is coming, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that was really, I, I seriously thought about that. When I got back to school and kind of was conversing with some of my friends, I'm very happy to tell you that some cool heads said, <laughs> look, just on the outside chance that Lindsay didn't get the right answer, don't you think? You've only got three more years. You might as well finish up here before you go start preaching on a street corner, you know? And, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy, uh, one faculty member in particular, a very influential man, a Presbyterian pastor turned college professor, uh, really did talk some sense into me and I, I, I appreciated that and I think that was God's grace at work keeping me from doing something precipitous stayed in school, glad I did, because as it turns out, as far as I know, Jesus didn't come back in 1975. (laughs) He didn't even make it back by 1988, which made Hal Lindsey's so-called fig tree generation become problematic, because that's what he had, you know, Mm -hmm. he, he, he viewed the text in the New Testament that says, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled, as referring to that last generation, what he called the fig tree generation. Well, it yeah. did pass away. You know, we're well past 1988 now, and he's had to uh, revise that rather substantially in subsequent writing. So anyway, that's the story. That, uh, that was kind of a, uh, an interesting, critical moment in my career in, in dealing with some of these eschatological issues.
0: Yeah, no, that's, very, uh, that's a very interesting story. Um, you know, I, my, my background is definitely pre-trib, you know, dispensational theology, my parents i've been having some interesting discussions with them later, lately um i have wonderful christian parents and thankfully they weren't the kind of dispensationalists who you know checked out of um, you know, really putting their hand to the plow, but they but it definitely affected our overall view of Christianity in, in many ways that I look forward to chatting you with you about. But uh, we've been discussing these issues as I'm thinking through them, and, and I, don't, I haven't landed per se in a camp yet, but I, I remember finding out, you know, I think growing up in it, you think that oh man, it's like Trinity dual natures of christ inspiration of scripture rapture (laughs) like (laughs) it's you know like it's been part part of like initial historic christian doctrine all the way back and so um i think finding out that it was mainly rooted in uh, john nelson darby in the 1800s didn't necessarily mean it was false but it was something like oh okay this is this is more of a novel new view um, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about that history? Was that the, the origin of what we call dispensational theology, or do people try to root it behind him, or how does that work?
1: I think it's, I think it's safe to say that it originated with Darby. Now, uh, people who've studied this are going to immediately protest, well, no, and they can, they can cite to some fairly obscure uh, voices, not many, uh, some, well, I would say maybe one or two quite early that said some things that do not represent any kind of full-orbed dispensational outlook, but little kind of detailed statements. One in particular, just by way of an example. Uh, you know, the dispensationalism hinges on an understanding that the so-called 70 weeks of Daniel that are, that are described by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 Uh, uh, That the 70th of those weeks is detached from the first 69 and That the 70th week of Daniel is in fact still in our future So you had 69 weeks then the clock stops as they would put it the 70th week is still out there in the future And that is going to become what's commonly called the tribulation, which will be a seven-year period of time uh, marked by Israel having to deal with the Antichrist and you know the, all that uh, that you're familiar with. Uh, well, the, the um, uh, idea that uh, the 70th week of Daniel may have been detached from the first 69 is actually suggested, I'm not sure it's all that clear, but it is at least suggested by one, uh, I won't say father, he's not w- well known enough to qualify, it's just a voice and it's kind of a fragmentary comment by an early uh, character, I can't think of his name right now, I'm sorry, but, uh, but who's writing, I think, in the 3rd century or so, who says something to that effect. You know, that the 70th week was detached from the first 69, for, and, and in the context, uh, that that's the comment. Well, he was kind of a lone voice. I mean, nobody was jumping on that bandwagon. And, uh, but my point is, you can say little elements Maybe little fragmentary elements of a dispensational outlook (laughs) have in fact, you know, showed up occasionally. Uh, No great thinker, no respected thinker, someone that would really be, you know, characterized as one of the heavyweights of Christian thinking in history took such a view. But I can't say there's not been any hints of it. So, but it is Darby who comes along. And of course the details of his story have been disputed. Mm. Uh, Some have claimed that he got his idea of a pre-tribulation rapture from a uh, visionary, I think, 16-year-old girl, but that's been disputed. I'm not gonna take a stand either way. I think the historical records are a little bit uh, ambiguous at best. Um, There's a very good book, uh, if your readers are, or if your listeners are at all interested in pursuing this more uh, closely, written fairly recently by a fellow named Hummel, H-U-M-M-E-L, and it's entitled The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Uh, It's not a hit job at all. He's just writing as a detached historian, dealing with what is manifestly a highly influential movement in America, especially, but certainly other places as well. Mm. And all he does is go through in a very even-handed way and trace the beginnings, kind of the the moment of, you might say, the zenith of dispensational influence. He talks about how Lindsay, the effect that he had to sort of popularize the movement, how to this day, many people are familiar with some of the jargon of dispensationalism, like the rapture, for example, that idea. And yet he also talks about how much fragmentation has taken place in recent years that there is no really consolidated, you'd say, intellectual dispensationalism anymore, but it is still a kind of a popular movement. And it's very well written. I think even someone committed to a dispensational outlook would find it a very useful and and really quite correct uh, history of that particular movement. And so anyway, a a lot more of the history of Darby is available there if someone wants to pursue that.
0: For sure, no, that's that's interesting. So, in in your own journey, what what were the what were some of the theological chinks that arose for you when you were in your dispensationalist phase?
1: Right, I think uh, it all kind of began uh, in dealing with Galatians. I was teaching Galatians, of course, a great book, you know, but if you look at Galatians closely, you realize that Paul says a really extraordinary thing. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, especially chapter 3, he says point-blank that um, those who are have faith in Christ are the seed of Abraham and heirs of the promises to Abraham and his seed, you know. Now there's a whole, Paul's making a whole case. The case he's making is a case warning Christian people not to be seduced into thinking they have to become, as it were, good Jews before they can become good Christians, with things like circumcision and so on. That's the that's kind of the case in the book of Galatians. But that statement, you see, really is the undoing of dispensationalism all by itself, because dispensationalism stands for the proposition that the seed of Abraham are and remain ethnic Jewish people, mm. and that Uh, the promises to Abraham are ultimately going to be realized with respect to ethnic Jewish people, that the state of Israel as as it exists today is very likely a realization of promises God made to ethnic Jewish people, that the seed of Abraham, in other words, are biological and not theological. Whereas Paul uh, seems to say precisely the opposite, and in fact a fair amount of the New Testament Really uh, is leaning in that direction John the Baptist said don't say in your hearts. We have Abraham as our father I tell you God can raise out of that rock seed of Abraham that are better than you You know that idea Paul says they are not all Israel just because they descend from Israel descend from Jacob and the book of Ephesians uh, makes quite a case out of the fact that by faith people become fellow citizens in the true Israel, which is not conceived of as an ethnicity at all, but is rather a state that comes by virtue of a person having faith in Christ. In other words, if you read the New Testament kind of in a detached way and ask yourself, what is, from the New Testament point of view, the true authentic Israel? Again and again, you get this uh, proposition developing that the people who are of faith in Christ The people who have entrusted themselves to him are the seed of Abraham, because as Paul says in Galatians, the promise was not made to seeds, Paul says, as of many, but as of one, to his seed. And that seed, says Paul, is Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, Mm. then he is derivatively seed of Abraham. But if anyone is not in Christ, he is not seed of Abraham. So a person can be a perfectly legitimate ethnic Jew, but if they don't have faith in Christ, they are not seed of Abraham. Uh, Paul says in Romans uh, 2, 28 and 29, he is not a Jew who is simply one outwardly, nor is circumcision simply outward in the flesh. The true Jew is one inwardly. True circumcision is of the heart, you know. Those kind of statements are sprinkled through the Bible, and, and dispensationalism hinges, it relies as a linchpin of its whole system on the idea that the seed of Abraham remain people who are defined as seed by ethnicity. The best explanation I've read in dispensational authors to try to get around that very conspicuous problem is that, well, he's talking about two different seeds. He's talking about an earthly seed and a heavenly seed, you know, and the earthly seed is Israel and the heavenly seed uh, are is the church, you know, that idea. Nice try, but that's not what it says, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not. Uh, the New Testament doesn't allow for that kind of bifurcation. There's no hint that something like that would be contemplated, and in fact, the, the evidence goes in entirely the opposite direction. So my the, that's a long answer to a simple <laughs> question. The first thing that really got under my skin was having to defend the question, how come the book of Galatians says, the seed of Abraham are people who have faith in Christ, when the, the, what, the view you're espousing is that the seed of Abraham are still people who at this point have no faith in Christ, but in fact, are still defined ethnically. Now, it goes way beyond that, but that was kind of the beginning of it. Way back in the, I would say in the mid-70s, probably 1974, 75, I was starting to choke a little bit on on some of those problems, you know.
0: Yeah, no, that's very, that is true. I, I, I recently read a book by Andrew Sandlin called A Primer for Postmillennialism, and he located that as, and he quoted a bunch of dispensational authors saying themselves that is the central feature of dispensational theology was God worked, working through these two separate groups. And he tried, he said, if I can basically, if this doesn't turn out to be true, then the system falls apart. Well, but if you don't have dispensationalism, though, where do you go as a, as a way to pull these things together and aim at the future? What, what, are, what would you th- call the main models? And, and can you maybe give a brief description of each?
1: Well, I would say there's, uh, you know, fundamentally, there's only two models. <laughs> you know, there's okay. certainly a lot of subpoints to that. Um, But uh, the the traditional view of the church, and this has been true uh, of all three major branches, Catholic, Eastern, and and, uh, uh, Protestant, um, with with some exceptions and some kind of uh, modifications along the way, but fundamentally, the idea has been that Jesus established his kingdom in the great events of the gospel that took place in the first century. That when Jesus uh, died and rose and ascended, uh, he announced to his disciples, okay, everybody, all authority has been given to me. Uh, that he has kicked out the, uh, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, there was war in heaven. Satan lost, he lost his place in heaven. In the old covenant era, Satan had an authority. He was the prosecutor of the Old Testament, but he lost his case at the cross. And uh, and that means that the kingdom of this world became the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So we are living in the kingdom right now. Now, sometimes people hear that and they look at you like you got four heads, you know, because they think, uh, well, this is the kingdom, you know, this is a real disappointment. But, yeah. you know, the the problem is we've, we've attached so much baggage To words like the millennium or the kingdom. We have this kind of utopian idealistic uh, delusion in our heads that is really not consistent with the biblical idea. All all the kingdom means is that Christ is king. He is the king over this world, but it's not an iron-fisted kingdom. He doesn't coerce people, pound them into faith. That's not the way it works. The gospel wins people through the power of the word not through the power of the sword and so he is certainly ruling all authority has been given unto him he has commanded us to go and make disciples of the nations he's commanded us to teach them everything that that he commanded and he's promised to be with us to the end of this project and uh, we have every reason to believe that a time is going to come in history when the knowledge of god will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that you know we have uh, we have a, a Great project that's underway, but it's a long way from being finished And so we are living in a in a growing kingdom Every time we say in the Lord's Prayer thy kingdom come we are praying for an increased expression Of the evidence of and the effect of the kingdom in this world the weapon of the kingdom is the gospel we proclaim the gospel to people, and as God's grace is provided, people's hearts melt. They come, they acknowledge Christ as king. The terms of salvation in the New Testament are as you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, the fundamental truth of the gospel, you will be saved, you see, and that's the, that's the simple uh, access into the kingdom. We become citizens of it, and we continue to be witnesses on behalf of that. So the short answer is all these branches of the Christian movement have generally believed that there's a great progress in history, Mm -hmm. certainly with fits and starts. This is not a smooth progress. It's got a lot of bumpy roads along the way, you know, and we're living in a bumpy time right now, in my opinion. But nevertheless, if you look at history in terms of 500 year bites, you realize there's definitely been a progress in the growth of the gospel Sometimes people say we're living in a post-Christian era. I don't believe it. I still believe we're living in a very pre-Christian era. We haven't really seen the worldwide mm. effects of the gospel yet, but, but we labor, we pray, we work uh, in that direction. Dispensationalism takes a generally pessimistic view of history. Things are gonna go from bad to worse, and finally things are gonna be so bad there's gonna be such a sweeping influence of evil in this world that Jesus comes back in a sense at the last moment to rescue his church and to intervene in history and establish his kingdom. Uh, generally, the majority view in church history, at least, has been just the opposite. There's a growth of the kingdom. It's an optimistic view of history. We realize that at any given moment, things can be grim, they can be hard, they can be challenging, uh, discouraging, uh, but nevertheless, we must never despair because we believe that Christ is ruling. The kings of the world may take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed, but you know He who sits in heaven scoffs at their rebellious behavior because He in fact is sovereign and accomplishing His purposes. So I'd say those are the two basic views. You got lots of kind of internal, uh, you know, various uh, specialized views, maybe in both of those. But there's sure. either an optimistic view or a pessimistic view of where history is going
0: yeah and so you get that pessimistic view definitely in dispensationalism oftentimes in historic premillennialism and oftentimes sure. maybe in versions of amillennialism if you were to map yeah. it on those four um how do you how do you see the difference between um you know you you're saying something similar to what the so the dispensationalists would say you know it's all going downhill so let's save souls right. you're saying preach the gospel Well, is that the same thing? What's the difference then? Does it matter which, if you have a hopeful eschatology or a pessimistic one? Because it sounds like you're saying the same thing is is the antidote.
1: Sure, in terms of the narrow content of the gospel, we are saying the same thing. You know, the gospel in the narrow sense is, Jesus was God among us. uh, And he came precisely to pay a debt we could never pay. uh, And he did that at the cross. So Paul says he's the propitiation for our sins Uh, He was set forth publicly as a propitiation Uh, And uh, at that point the sting of death was absorbed by Christ And so if I put my faith in him Then I am absolved of guilt I was crucified with Christ God sees me as crucified with Christ I've already done my time in hell It's as if I've spent eternity there and uh, you know now I'm free to go. So uh, that's that's the idea. So that I think dispensational people, for the most part, are quite orthodox when it comes yeah. to the fundamental truth of the gospel. Um, the question is, does the gospel have a broader uh, impact? Is there a wider swath to the gospel? In other words, is there a slop over effect so that the institutions of this world? are going to be renovated and changed and improved by virtue of the effects of the gospel. Well, people in the kind of the optimistic outlook would say certainly yes, that if the gospel is the sort of the predominant uh, consensus opinion, even if people are not all Christian, if kind of the gospel is the order of the day, as a general rule, people treat, people treat each other better. They tend to live more by the golden rule. They tend to give, you know, 100 pennies on the dollar. They tend to work hard. That Puritan work ethic was born out of a certain uh, understanding that that, uh, we ought to work hard. We should be industrious people. We should be building for the future and so on. And uh, dispensationalism, uh, while it doesn't discourage or disparage hard work, it doesn't have a good theological reason for it. Uh, J. Vernon McGee was a very famous and popular uh, dispensational preacher. I used to listen to him all the time because I was in radio, you know, and for a time I was in Christian radio. And so uh, when I worked the evening shift, we always at 9 p.m. every night put on J. Vernon McGee. And I'd listen to a half an hour of his uh, Southern drawl and his humor, you know, and it was was a lot of fun. But he was was great for one-liners, and and one of the one-liners for which he was the most famous was... Why polish the brass on a sinking ship, you see? And that was his whole critique of Christians trying to go out and make a difference in the public square, trying to go out and change the political order or have an influence in the broader cultural expressions because he's saying it's a losing proposition. If you're on the good ship Titanic and it's going down, then don't waste your time rearranging the deck chairs, you know? You've got to preach the gospel, you've got to get some people in that lifeboat, because this baby's going down. Well, the Reformed tradition that I represent, and others like it, would say, well, we're not so sure the ship, the ship Titanic is going down. Uh, it certainly can be in trouble at points, and we should be doing everything we can to salvage it, but maybe we should be thinking about um, the the political implications of the gospel. I mean, you know, the United States of America was founded by people largely influenced by the Reformed tradition from Calvin through John Knox and the Puritans in England and so on. I mean that was the that was the, the cultural outlook. They would have they would have just been horrified at the idea that this is a losing proposition. Jonathan Edwards was robust in his conviction that what we're doing here is a great experiment that's going to realize a city on a hill there's going to be a wonderful positive things are going to happen in the world because of what we're doing it's a very different view and i'd say that is where you'd really locate uh, probably the most dramatic difference between a pessimistic and more of an optimistic view of what is yeah. happening in-
0: i think that was instructive for me, you know, with all the stuff that's been going on the last several years, I think many of us have kind of taken a second look at everything like, man, are, like, have we maybe contributed to this by uh-huh. abdicating from these things? Um, in fact, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but there's an Indian theologian, Vishal Mangalwadi, who wrote the absolutely. book, absolutely, he's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I've heard him, he kind of speaks strongly at times, (laughs) Um, but he, you know, he, I heard him in an interview once and he, he really laid a lot of the blame at the feet of dispensational theology for, for what has happened to America. And at the time I didn't have really much of an understanding of any, a a different kind of Christianity. So when I began to look at like some of your material, others, uh, Joe Boot on the Puritans and Calvin and, and how that really really built this nation that was really eye-opening for me and, and it made sense of man you know you get some dispensationalists who do good work but it but the system itself tends to push in the direction of exactly what you said and so what what was it about what was the theology of the puritans and calvin that um contributed to the founding principles of america that were sort of running on the fumes of
1: yeah, well, the you know the the um, it, it, you'd have to really say it was Calvin. Augustine, um, in his book *The City of God*, laid out a road map that stood for the idea of a growth of the kingdom of the city of God in this world. Uh, many people would say he's all millennial. Uh, because he doesn't describe a kind of thousand-year period at the end of history. I I actually don't like the term post-millennial too much. I don't usually use it. That's technically what I am. So I'm not disparaging that, but I prefer to call my view a theology of hope. I think that is a little bit closer to the mark. But uh, but because Augustine didn't define a kind of future thousand-year so-called Golden Age, uh, he's sometimes called a millennial. Be that as it may, he did describe a growth. He believed that the city of man versus the city of God is going to lose in the long haul. The city of God is going to keep growing, and that's really the case he makes. Now, the he was, of course, uh, a, you know, an important character in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, I think, took that ball and ran with it but may not have run with it in quite the way that Augustine would have preferred. I I think they really believed that this growth of the kingdom was going to come in some large part through coercive power. Didn't happen immediately, but of course, with the collapse of Rome and with the rise of, you might say, ecclesiastical Rome and the missionaries, monks that went out and preached in Northern Europe and elsewhere, uh, they became Very, uh, over time, I mean, you know, over several centuries really, became extraordinarily important and gained a great deal of political power. Hmm. And unfortunately, the political power that the church acquired uh, translated into some fairly conspicuous political corruption, uh, so that to be a churchman became less of a spiritual leader and more of a political, uh, you know, person wielding that kind of power. And certainly, that just led to some very, a very dark chapter in Roman Catholic history. I have very close friends who are Roman Catholics, and we talk about this, and they readily admit that uh, you know the the popes of the late Middle Ages. Uh, Giovanni de Medici and uh, some of these guys, you know, they were really not models of Christian virtue, and uh, they're they're the first to allow that that Luther had a good reason to be objecting, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of the the the, uh, the uh, state of the church at that point. Luther comes along; he really does recover the heart of the gospel, but Luther, uh, because he was under a a, a political protector, Duke Fred, Frederick had to be pretty cautious about the political overtones. He wrote on political matters, but he didn't really do it in a way that Calvin did. Calvin, a generation later, uh, in, in really fairly relative freedom in Geneva there, uh, did develop much more uh, thoroughly an idea of the growth of the kingdom. It really, You'd have to say in Calvin, it's quite clear, quite conspicuous that he believed that history is going somewhere, that we're not in a static situation. Uh, it's certainly not going downhill, although he had a reason to think it was going downhill in his day, but he nevertheless believed based on biblical evidence that history is going somewhere good and that that should be what Christians are working toward. John Knox showed up in Geneva. He was a refugee there when Mary Bloody Mary was ruling in England And Don Knox just absorbed wholesale this Calvinistic outlook not only the theology of Calvin but kind of the political outlook And went back to his home nation of Scotland and did everything he could to reproduce that Calvinistic vision in Scotland So the Scott Presbyterians are the effect of that Same thing happened in England with the English Puritans. They were they were of the same general outlook They just went by two different names the Puritans and the Presbyterians And by far, most of the people that came to the New World, uh, escaping increasing persecution, both in Scotland and in England, were of course from that Presbyterian and Puritan outlook. And it's no surprise therefore that that uh, that was just taken for granted, that part of what was happening here in the colonies and eventually in our uh, establishing this uh, uh, way of life that we've enjoyed for so long, uh, was born out of that kind of reformed theology. Calvin, I think, uh, correctly got it from the Bible. So, you know, your original question was, where did it come from? I think you'd say Calvin simply saw it as part of the truth of Scripture, and he uh, incorporated it into his writings and in the Institutes and elsewhere, and, and John Knox took it from there, and now we have it here, and other parts of the world as well have seen something of that. So I, I think I think ultimately they got it from the Bible, but the, sort of that; those are sort of the linchpins along the way that that got yeah. it. Uh,
0: today. No, that's good. And for anybody that's interested in hearing like the details of that that series that you did on on the Presbyterians and the founding, really go into detail on that, and even you know some of the things like where the idea of you know equal rights comes from and all that kind of stuff, right. and that being rooted in biblical theology, and really helpful. Um, so the, one of the questions I had, I, I know people are probably thinking right now as they hear this, like. How can you be hopeful about human history when everything in the New Testament is saying, like, you know, in the last days, men will be lover of themselves. And uh, Jesus said, will I find faith in the earth? And all of that discourse, like, this is going to happen. The sun's going to go dark, you know, all these bad things. And it looks like it's happening, you know, with the Klaus Schwab and, and the the vaccines and, you know, all this stuff like that- the mark of the beast is coming with the, the social credit score. So isn't that a, isn't that hitting like the New Testament Predictions on that sense I know that's a big question but like how do you how do you remain optimistic in light of that those kinds of biblical things about the last days?
1: yeah well, good question and it's uh, I think probably the, the the best thing to mention first is that in the New Testament that term the last days, we sort of have a knee-jerk assumption that the last days is referring to the last days of human history but of course the statement is being made to people who are living in a very particular historical context and the warning is supposed to be digested by them as something to help them understand their own day. Uh, And as a general rule, when the New Testament uses the term the last days, it's referring to the last days of the old covenant era. Uh, The old covenant had been in place ever since Moses Uh, It had become a whole way of life, of course, in ancient Israel, but it was drawing to a close. And in those last days, there were going to be some very bumpy roads. So, you know, the Olivet Discourse details that. Uh, Jesus in Holy Week uh, makes pronouncements about the judgments that are going to befall Israel. Your house is left to you desolate. Not one stone will be left upon another. They're going to build siege works around you and so on. And and, uh, and so, we're, if, if a person looks at the term the last days in that sense, then at least it, it gives a kind of a framework to understand why the term is used. However, uh, the fact that those things are stated should not therefore suggest that they don't continually, I, maybe I'll put it this way, the fact that the last days was referring to the last days of the Old Covenant, is no argument that it doesn't always continue to describe human conduct, human behavior. In some ways, what we read of as describing the last days does, in fact, describe all days of human history. You know, mm. uh, we are corrupt people. Uh, Paul is saying those things. Uh, there are warnings in the New Testament because the people of God who are embracing Christ need to realize. That they're in for a bumpy road. The whole book of Revelation was, re- was really written to warn people uh, bumpy roads are coming. This is a time of some disruption, so fasten your seatbelt, you know. Uh, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that the bad conduct of people uh, ended, uh, you know, with the end of the Old Covenant. People continue to act very poorly, and so many of those descriptions are certainly applicable throughout all human history. Um, the 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 idea of, of progress, you know I, I get this question a lot because I, tr- I try to sound optimistic and people say, "How can you be optimistic? How did you read the morning newspaper and you know all of this horrible stuff is happening and look at what's happening right now in Israel and and all of the Hamas and all of this stuff, you know, it's obviously, you know you, you get that, and I you know'm I'm, I'm as much aware of what's happening in the news as the next guy, so it's not like I'm oblivious to that. But the difficulty we have is to have a rather provincial view of history. We tend to think Mm -hmm. history is measured in terms, at the very most, of my lifetime, you know. Mm -hmm. We all have a a sort of self-centeredness and want to believe that that the most important things that have ever happened are happening right now, and they're involving me. I mean, we have that kind of me-centered view. Uh, And so it's understandable that people would look at anything that's happening. I mean the Second World War Hitler, people were saying the very same things because it was so threatening. I mean obviously it looked like horrible things were happening. Hmm. The Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s people were saying the very same things, you know in other words, no matter at what time you look at in human history, you're going to see people had every reason to believe, if they wanted to believe it, that they were living in the end times. I mean, there's always plenty of evidence that we're living in the end times. And you would think if you just sampled uh, human opinion at any given moment, that things are in fact going from bad to worse. I mean, that really would be the impression. I would, I look at my own life, I say, wow, it seems like things are a lot worse now than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago. I'm 75 years old, you know, so I've got a little bit of a uh, swath of history to think about. I think things are worse now than they were, you know, when I was a kid, let's say. Um, But I can't measure history just in terms of you know, what's happened in my lifetime. If you ask me, well, in the last 500 years, in the last 1,000 years, do you see some evidence that things have actually improved? Uh, Not in the last 50 years, but the last 500 years, let's say. Well, 500 years ago, about one out of three women died in childbirth. One out of, Hmm. you know, 500 years ago, a third of Europe was wiped out in the Black Plague. Uh, you know, a thousand years ago, virtually everybody was living in absolute, unspeakable poverty, scratching a living out of the ground. It was very few that actually were living comfortable life. I, I really don't want to trade places with those people. As bad as things are today, I have to say medical technology improvements, all the things we've seen, which all can be traced really to the Christian influence, you know, historically, uh, have made life better. It ain't perfect. It's not pretty. It still can be pretty ugly at times. And yet, the long-term effects of the gospel have, in fact, measurably improved the human situation. There's a great book, I've mentioned it on some of my lectures, so you may be familiar with it, but it's called Under the Influence by a guy named Alvin Schmidt. And he details 2,000 years of the Christian influence. That's what he means, under the influence. And it is a, it's a stunning argument in favor of all of the positive benefits that have come by virtue of the influence of the gospel. Vishal Mangalwadi, that you mentioned, is a wonderful voice arguing. He wrote a book called The Book That Made Your World, and he's arguing that all of the great advantages that we used to call Western civilization, you know, come from the Bible. And it's a he's a very you know, the profound intellectual and and everything he's written is worth reading. So my point is, we have to take the long view. You know, I've got some money in the stock market. Well, the stock market sometimes goes down. I don't like it to go down, I like it to go up. But uh, when it goes down, I have to say, well, you know, that's kind of the way it can be in the market. But if I look at the market, not in terms of what happened in the last 30 days, but maybe what happened in the last 30 years, well, Manifestly, any chart of the market is going to show a very steady improving uh, value. I mean, the market trends up, even if at a given moment it's it's going down. I think the growth of the kingdom is a lot like that. I think the trend has been up measurably, irrefutably, even though at any given moment it may look a little dicey.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. Man, we're uh, we're coming close to to our time here. And I've got a whole other page of questions. So I'll have to have <laughs> you come back in the future. But um, I'll try to narrow it down to just a couple more. Um, so one, I know, you know, hearing that the last days was referring to that first century can be, you know, mind blowing for people that d- don't have a background in that understanding. Which is sometimes called partial preterism, which I know you have problems with that label for different reasons as well. But um can you just maybe talk a little bit more about um is that like a is that a newer cause some people are saying, man, there's this new doctrine sweeping through or saying everything happened in eighty seventy and this is um has has that been around in church history at all? Like interpreting some of those things along those lines. And then if you do that, how do you draw a principle to not kind of go all the way to the full preterism?
1: Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a great question. That is worth a whole different. Right. <laughs> <the> conversation. <laughs> oh, oh, give give the trend. cliff
0: note version and we'll have it. We'll yeah. have the fuller version right. down the road.
1: There's uh, uh, the, the, um, the term preterism, uh, you know, I, I, you're right, I, I kind of avoid uh, certain terms because they immediately invoke baggage, and I don't like baggage, you know, and so, and and I've said many times, I don't like to be a partial preterist because I don't like to be a partial anything. I want to be absolutely fully devoted to Jesus. I want to live and die for Jesus, and there's nothing partial about that, you know, so that's kind of where mm. I'm coming from. But the people that use partial preterism, um, they generally believe that a great deal of the predictive prophecy that, that is recorded for us in the New Testament was, in fact, realized in the events of 70 A.D. Uh, 70 A.D. Was a was a year of extraordinary significance because it represented the final conclusion with a big exclamation point of the Old Covenant era. Now, it had fundamentally ended already, but with the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the priesthood, with the destruction of the animal sacrifices, with the destruction of all the apparatus of the old covenant religion of Israel, the old covenant system itself came grinding to a halt. Jesus had said plainly, clearly, repeatedly that that was going to happen. He had told people, you can't put new wine in old wineskins, you need to You know, you need to recognize Messiah, recognize that the kingdom of God is coming, and it's a new thing. It's certainly continuous with the old. This is not what some people slanderously call. This is replacement theology. Nothing's being replaced. True Israel was true Israel in the Old Testament, but it was in the apparatus, the external visible structures of the old covenant, the temple and all of that. That was scaffolding. When the new covenant rolled around, the scaffolding was removed, but true Israel remained. So there were people who were circumcised in their hearts in the old covenant, and there were people who were circumcised in their bodies and not in their hearts in the old covenant. In other words, there was true Israel all the way through. Well, now the scaffolding is gone. Now the true temple is visible. It's the people of God. Now the true priesthood is visible. It's Christ first and the priesthood of all believers. Now the true sacrifice is visible. It's Christ who was the true sacrifice, not animals. They didn't atone for anything, you know. And so that the, the transformation that occurred in the first century, uh, especially at 70 AD, is not to be underestimated. In my own view, I think the view of the best you know, scholars on this, is that Revelation is describing the tumultuous events surrounding the end of the old covenant era, all of which consummated in 70 AD. And um, so that that is the uh, reason that that date is so important. Now, some people, you know, give them an inch, take a mile. And so they think, well, if some of the predictive prophecy in the New Testament was realized in 70 AD, maybe all of it was, you know, and those are called full preterists. I call it radical preterism. Uh, it's going too far. It, be, it is technically heretical because it, it is uh, uh, contrary to the classical creeds of the church, all of which say that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe that. I believe history is going somewhere. I believe that the kingdom is under construction. I believe that a, that a time will come when lions do lie down with lambs. That's that's poetic language to mean that people who are intractable enemies are going to find common ground in Christ. I believe that a day may come, probably not in my lifetime, but a day may come when people who are aligned with, a, with an organization like Hamas will lie down with people who are connected with Israel, that the the hostilities can be extinguished in Christ but only in Christ and so you know the the idea that there is a that there is a growth of the kingdom heading for some kind of of wonderful consummate expression of the effect of the gospel I think is is New Testament teaching and that keeps me from being a full preterist because I think history is still heading toward a great consummate moment and that at that point Christ does return there is a last day there is a final resurrection there is a final judgment and that's still lies in our future i hope that kind of gets at your question better.
0: yeah no that's a great that's a great start like i said i think we <clears throat> there's so much more we could dig into there we'll have to you have to save that for a future time um, well well thank you for being generous with your time i got one final uh question to to rule them all and so who who is the Antichrist? No, I'm just, <laughs> just messing. with me. So um, that that's a whole other uh, can right there that that would be an interesting answer. But what I what I would ask you to end up with today is, um, you know, I think that many of the folks now that are kind of like giving the rapture message and say, well, here's what here's what we do in this moment. We just gotta you know get back to prayer, kind of like in like get our inward life right. And then you know, kind of save as many souls as we can. But what do you think? What do you think in this cultural moment? If Calvin were here, how would he encourage us in this moment? Like, what what would be? He'd say, you know, here's where we're heading in the future, and so therefore, let's do this now. And I know, not in a detailed way, but in a general sense, would what would he? What do you think he could bring to this moment?
1: Well, yeah, well you know, I think Calvin would say first of all, well, if he were alive right now, he would think things aren't a lot. A lot worse than they were when he was alive, and maybe they're somewhat better. Mm. Uh, Because when he was alive, uh, people were executed uh, if they wouldn't sign a confessional statement of some kind. There were people Mm. executed because they didn't subscribe to the Trinity, Uh, or, you know, in Catholic countries, they were burned at the stake. I mean, as bad as it is, in some ways, it's always been this bad. People have always been viciously cruel, and Calvin would say, never underestimate the power of the gospel. We need to understand the gospel has a, has a wider implication than simply saving souls, but it certainly begins with saving souls, and he, he would certainly stand for that. Uh, I, I think he would appreciate the American experiment. I think he would lament that we've wandered quite a ways from the original vision uh, and I think he would probably be trying to call us back to something of the best of what was the origins of our country. But, but uh, I'm not the genius that Calvin was, and so <laughs> he would give a much better answer to that question than I can give you. But I think <laughs> start. No,
0: nah, that's good. Well, thank you, and thanks so much for uh, just man spending this time. This has been so helpful. And but- what's the best way our listeners can uh, connect with what you're doing?
1: Oh, well, uh, a couple of ways, you know, if, if, if they just want to watch a lecture or two, you just go to YouTube and type in my name, Bruce Gore, and uh, I pop up there. And, and uh, so I've, that's the eas- That's by far the easiest. I have yeah. a website. Uh, it's uh, www.brucegore.com. And there they can find some stuff that they won't find on YouTube, audio lectures and a bunch of stuff if anyone liked to contact me, I'm happy to get emails. They can they do that. It's Bruce at Bruce So, you know, anyone that liked awesome. to uh, send me a, a, a message of some kind or a question, I'm happy to entertain awesome. those and, as I can. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Well, I may hit you up with a few myself, but uh, oh, yeah. until, oh, until next time, thank you so much. Well, right. so I appreciate it, man.
1: All right. Thanks, Seth. I'll-